roses turn to scat It's better because of you and that's a fact We're in this together, you and I We're in this together, you and I Alright dad, how's it going? Not too bad about yourself. I'm doing pretty good, pretty good. Uh, what is the question of the week? Well, the question of the week is, who was your craziest or most interesting teacher? Or who is your craziest and most interesting teacher? Could be the same teacher. Okay, well, I feel like my answer will be obvious to you. <laughs> Can you guess it? <laughs> I'm guessing it may be somebody who you had for four years was your homeroom teacher and, and my choir teacher. That's right. It was also your choir yeah. and show choir. You're right on, Pop. Though I don't want to disparage him. No, no, word, no. That's fine. But the word teacher is a little bit too strong to describe what he did <laughs> for me in the classroom. He was more right. he's more of a a personal mentor and friend and he was simultaneously my boss my homeroom teacher and my choir teacher but i think that given how much time i spent in his vicinity and the fact that he cut my checks all throughout high school i barely ever saw him because he was always locked up in his office and i was busy with my classmates teaching ourselves music (laughs) (laughs) mr kelly a great man i think that so so yeah i don't i don't want to disparage him but he was absolutely crazy and i'm trying to think of what i can share that isn't going to make him sound bad and i don't know he just was a very cantankerous old man waiting for retirement and he did not have much interest in teaching, but he wanted to have students and mentor them. But the the truth of the matter was he just spent all of his time in his office and we taught ourselves to sing. I guess that's it. So, so maybe uh, how did he get into teaching? So Mr. Kelly was a, a lounge singer. He told, this is, he told me this story in exact detail. This is why I'm asking, because I think I've heard this before, but you know, it would be great for our listeners to hear it as well. So he was a lounge singer in a band, and when you're starting out in a band, a lot of the spots that you're getting are not the preferable time slots, right? You're not getting the right, 7 right. p.m. Friday night showing. Right. Uh, unfortunately, that's just not how it works, because they, they book those times so the people who are busy. But... He could get gigs during the day at different events or in the lobbies of hotels, this, that, and the other thing. And this is a long time ago because when he he retired, he was 62 and had been teaching for 28 years uh, because that added up to 90, which is how he got his retirement benefits. Yes, the rule of 90. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And and, – so back, so that I graduated in 2017. So 28 years before that, he was a lounge singer, but supplemented his income by being a substitute music teacher. And ah. one place where he would substitute was Jefferson High School, where I went to high school. And yep. I guess that the uh, 
children in high school at Jefferson way back when gave the current choir teacher a psychotic breakdown. So he oh. was fired and had to be institutionalized for a brief wow. time. Wow. And he's the one who actually started show choir at Jefferson. Uh, and I think that his last name was Knight, Mr. Knight, I think. Because okay. that for a while, the show choir was named after him. And then they needed a choir teacher because they had to fire this guy mid-year because of uh, the breakdown. And so they offered Jeff to stay on through the end of the year. And if things went well, they would give him the opportunity to take the job full time. Good well, opportunity he, for him then. He wasn't that interested because he wanted oh. to make it as a musician. Got it. But he took the job through the end of the year to help build up some money. Right. And then he found out that you get the summers off as a teacher. He never knew uh, that. So he didn't know that. Oh, okay. I don't know how he made it through school. <laughs> so he was, no, I'm not going to be a teacher. No, I'm not going to be a teacher. And then they told him he got the summers off. And he said, well, dang, this isn't a bad gig. So then he took it. But he never <laughs> wanted to be a teacher, which is a specific skill set that a teacher should have. One being Wanting the, to be the a desire to be a teacher. Because usually, yeah, I think it's difficult to motivate yourself to be something that requires... Like, Oh, if you get an office job that you don't want, you can go in and grind out nine to five and maybe your work suffers a bit, but at the end of the day, the company's still probably going to be fine. You're just a little bit of waste. But in a teaching environment, very different story because you've got a room full of kids who Waiting literally depend on you to prepare and give them curriculum. And I don't know if when he was younger, if maybe he was more passionate about it and was more involved but by the time that i was going through as mentioned he said that told me in plain terms that he was waiting for his his retirement benefits and um i guess i'm so far removed from it now but the thing that made him crazy were these what we like to call kellyisms where he would um he'd kind of zone out for a bit and then after he zoned out he'd get really agitated and generally okay. impart some kind of like angry wisdom so i remember <laughs> my first week ever at jefferson i was in show choir i guess i had made it in to the show choir and i didn't know this guy very well at all at this point and he's just sitting there and he's in front of us and class hasn't really started yet because again he doesn't doesn't teach often he just sits there and then the students lead it themselves which is a weird concept i know but it's how it works yes and then he was standing there sitting there silently and we were all just talking with each other for a good five to ten minutes out of a 50 minute period and then he just says never do acid and, <laughs> and the look in his eyes was like somebody who knew to give you that advice now i'm not saying that he was on acid i'm just saying that for some reason for that 10 minutes my first week in high school he was thinking about doing lsd and then telling us never to do lsd which was great i mean it was good advice he's a wonderful man and obviously i went on 
I was a theater technician and he managed all of that stuff. Manage is a loose term. He hired one of the students to be the manager. So my manager's name was Connor and he was a senior and I was a freshman and he managed the whole thing. And then when he graduated, then I managed it for the next three years. And in all that time, I did a lot of different things for Mr. Kelly to help him uh, do the parts of the job that he was actually getting paid for that I was doing. So I don't know. I, I, this is not this doesn't translate well as a story on a podcast because I feel like you have to know him a little bit. But without a doubt, he was a crazy teacher. And there's some things I don't want to say, too. No, that's fair. He, uh, you know, obviously your mom and I got a chance to meet him several times throughout uh, the years that uh, you were there. And uh, he was always very pleasant. Uh, uh, he, he always w- had a kind word to say about you and just everybody who was in choir. So I, I enjoyed him as, as a person. Obviously I did, did too. Not know, yeah, did not know him anywhere near the same amount as you or the, the you know, tons and tons of choir kids that came through. So, um yeah. He was very um, beloved, and I I, yeah. I liked oh, him a lot too. Absolutely. I just I wish I could put into words how weird it was, and maybe if I was closer to high school, I would still like have some good good stories. But sure. it's been so long now that it's just kind of a lost lost piece of history. The the Kelly era, they've burned through I think two choir teachers since him. Yeah, that's amazing. And he was there for twenty eight would... years. Yeah, that's that's kind of crazy. Uh, so, yeah. How about good, you? Good Pop? for him. Obviously. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll go more along the lines of most interesting teacher, not so much craziest teacher. Uh, the most interesting teacher I had was also one of my favorite teachers, but also one of my most challenging teachers I ever had. His name was Mr. Jensen. He was an English teacher in high school, and he was interesting because he was a very very smart man. That that you knew he was very smart. But he was also very, very gruff. So uh, he would walk into class, and if you did not have your books lined up exactly right on the on the desk, if you didn't have um, your pens or and or pencils out, your notebook open and ready to take notes, he would stop and lecture you about how your preparedness was lacking, and that you needed to be ready to go because once you got into college, nobody else was going to do anything for you. So he was getting prepared for college. This was as a uh, junior in, in, in high school. And so that was kind of a, a, an odd awakening because you're not really thinking about having to act a certain way uh, in high school, uh, you know, in, in that fashion. Uh, but he was super smart. He had a lot of great insight into a lot of different things. Uh, he knew it, there was probably not a topic in, in English. Uh, actually, let me back up in literature, not just English, but in literature that you could bring up that he didn't know almost everything about. Like if you threw an author out, he's read every every book. Uh, the thing though, to me that w- that I really enjoyed about him, what made me one of my made him one of my favorite teachers, is he also, uh, as part of our English class, did our composition uh, work with us. So when we had to write papers, he was the guy that we would be writing them for. And when you have a guy who's as strict as he is on, on everything that he does, uh, you can imagine that when you were writing a paper, it could be somewhat intimidating. Uh, the thing, though, that I remember most about him was the advice that he gave every single person. And I still use this today. I still use it. Uh, every single person about when you're telling a story uh, in, in writing that you just got to follow a very simple pattern. 
You need to tell people what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. And then you tell them what you just told them. He said, if you do that, your story is going to be interesting. People are going to want to read it and they will probably go back to it. He said, this isn't novel work. He's like, if you're writing a paper, that's how you write a paper. Yeah. You dump, you know, and, and I use that whenever uh, I was writing uh, papers in college. And even when I, when I write, uh, this is funny enough, I speaking in reviews, when I'm writing reviews, I think about that when I'm writing the summary, uh, last, the summary section for the review for someone at the, at the bottom of the review, it's okay. Here's, here's, you know, what I was going to tell you. Here's what I told you. And here's how I'm summing it up. I still use that same technique. So while he wasn't a crazy teacher, he was very interesting and he still has an impact in what I do literally in my job today. That's great. I, uh, I do think one thing that you mentioned that's interesting is a lot of teachers, maybe not like strict about the way your desk is organized and stuff, but the constant excuse that you do here in high school, or at least nowadays is when, like, when you get to college, you're going to have to be able to do this and that and this and the other thing. And like, you guys better learn this now. Cause when you get to college, like the professors aren't going to be like helpful or nice or whatever. And it gives this very scary, like view of Absolutely. independence when you yep. go to college. And then I feel like, when you actually get into college classes, it's kind of a breath of fresh air because a lot of the times, I guess the point is this, in high school, you have to do your homework and it gets graded and it's it has a big effect. And I think that they try to teach you that there's going to be a time when you're expected to do homework and you need to do it maybe to do well on the test, but it's not graded in college in most cases it depends on the professor but in most cases the only thing that matters is that papers that you hand in and the tests that you take and uh or at least if they do grade the homework it's a very small fraction of your grade compared to high school and so they're always like oh you, you got to do this to get to co in college if you don't like have the discipline to do it yourself then you're never going to get it done but then in college when I didn't have the discipline to get it done and I didn't get it done, then it was not a big deal. But in high school, it was a big deal. And it was actually kind of nice. So it's interesting. It's a good skill that they try to teach. But I think that nothing motivates schooling as well as fear of failure, as well as fear <laughs> of failure. So like, if I knew that I needed to do the homework for a test in college, then I would do the homework. But if I knew I didn't need to do the homework because I knew the content, then I just wouldn't do it and it would all be fine. So I, that's an aside. I just thought that was an interesting thing that that was happening when you were in high school. And it happened to me a lot when I was in high school where they threatened you with the immense independence of college, which should sound like a good thing, but they somehow make it sound scary and then you actually get to college and it's not not as scary as they've made it, I feel like. I agree with you. I would say that that was my experience as well uh, when I was in classes, uh, that the, the TAs and the professors were far more helpful than you anticipated them to be. And yeah, maybe they didn't hound you like, hey, you got to get your stuff in. But if you had questions about it, they were there to help. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. Like you said, uh, I think... That's just one of those maybe old wives' tales, if you will, that uh, that's been passed down from generation to generation to to kind of like you said, scare you into getting your act together in high school, uh, knowing that somewhere down the line it may or may not make a difference. Yeah, yeah, I I think you're right.
It's a fair question. I, I wish I would have uh, maybe thought a little bit more about things that I could have shared about Mr. Kelly, but but good question, Dad. All right. Awesome. Okay, so for our feature story, last week we talked about how subways work. And then after the podcast, you said, I thought this was going to be about how Subway works, as in the (laughs) restaurant. And you were making a joke. But I I was was like, that's a great idea for an episode, Dad. We can talk about (laughs) Subway. Sounds great. And you were like, well, I was just joking. And I was like, no, 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 no. We're doing this. And I couldn't think of a more timely week to do it than the week where we just talked about it how subways work last week now we can talk about subway we can now we can talk about how now we can talk about how subways work last week was how subways work and this week is how subways work okay i love it so this is more just going to be like a run through of facts about subway the history of sub sandwiches and stuff just things that i researched after you mentioned that we should do an episode about how subways work Okay, so it's not going to be particularly informative, but it it will give you some niche knowledge in case people are wondering. Hey, I'm thinking Tuesday trivia night. This this may come in handy. It very well could. So in 1965 in Bridgeport, Connecticut, 17 year old Fred DeLuca opened Pete's Super Submarines. Wait a second here. He was 17 when he started this? 17 years old? 17-year-old Fred DeLuca wow. opened a restaurant called Pete's Super <laughs> Submarines. So why was it not called Fred's or DeLuca's? That's a great question. <laughs> so I think that before we get into the history of Subway, we should talk about submarine sandwiches. Yeah, I think that's a great idea as well. What What is a submarine sandwich? What defines a submarine sandwich? So this is the weird thing about it. So submarine sandwiches are called submarine sandwiches for reasons you might expect in that the bun that a submarine sandwich is comprised of resembles very vaguely, if at all, (laughs) a submarine. Basically, it's long, it's circular at the ends, I guess like a big egg shape, long, extended, oblong. See, this is why they said it looks like a submarine, because if you describe the bread to somebody, it's not that easy to describe. An oblong, (laughs) it's not a cylinder. I don't see, it's a submarine sandwich. You can only know it by one name, except it's got a million different names. Yes, it does. Submarine sandwiches don't have a specific origin, but we do know where they come from. They come okay. from the northeastern United States. Okay, it's, so up in the area you're living in now. Exactly. So it, again, couldn't be more timely time to talk about how subways work and how subways work. Now, <laughs> you could posit that um, that Subway was named after there being a subway up here, but it's not is named after the submarine sandwich. And the submarine sandwich has different names in different parts of the Northeast, but everywhere else in the United States, except the Northeast, is called the submarine sandwich. Unless you're at a place that puts a different name on the menu. I wanted to know if you could guess 
the okay. different names that it goes by. Oh boy. Um I'm going to guess Hoagie is one. Hoagie is the is the second most common. Do you know where that one originates? Um New Jersey. It's Philadelphia, so very close. The border of okay. New Jersey. Philadelphia. I was I, I was going to guess Philly, but um I wasn't sure if if they were if one of the other ones was just called a Philly sandwich. Um, no. So So Hoagie you know, if you're at Subway, of course, it's called a sub. Or if you're an out-of-towner, you'll call it a sub. But they'll call mostly anything on a sub sandwich uh, or on a sub bun a hoagie. Uh, even, like, now, I think a lot of people associate the word hoagie with, like, warm, like, meatballs or, like, shredded yes. steak and stuff. But the yeah. hot, cold, whatever, they will call it a hoagie in Philadelphia. And if some Italian American restaurants throughout the, I, I'm thinking of Devani's Pizza in Bloomington. Oh yes, they sold sub Absolutely. sandwiches that they called hoagies. Yes. So that's the second most common one. Do you have other guesses? So I I don't. I should. I if I if I think if I sat here and thought about it, I could probably come up with a. You're couple, gonna hear them. As, yeah. As I know. Soon as soon as, as you tell me, I'm gonna, gonna go. I'm gonna go. Oh man. Okay. All right. Fire away. The New York version of a submarine sandwich is called a hero, a hero oh, yes. sandwich. Yes. You've seen that on yep. menus for sure. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, and they claim in the history books that it's related to the term euro, but there's not a specific link for that. It seems odd because it's a pita versus a long, non-cylindrical oval type piece yeah. of bread versus something that is not like that at all. Right. So, again, if you're not at a chain or you're not an out-of-towner, you will know a sub submarine sandwich as a hero sandwich in New York. And on New York-based like restaurant chains throughout the United States, you might see a hero sandwich. It's a submarine sandwich. Same exact thing. The most famous one in New York uh, is the eggplant parmigiana, chicken parmigiana, and meatball heroes. Those are the three three most famous they're staples okay now another one is italian in oh, maine yeah yeah a sandwich a submarine sandwich is called an italian sandwich regardless of what's on it now a lot of sub places will sell an italian sandwich but every sub sandwich in maine if you're not an out of town or not at a chain is called an italian and another is Wedge, which is only used in three counties in New York, north yep. of New York City, but not quite upstate. Dutchess, Putnam, and Westchester counties know sub sandwiches as Wedge sandwiches. And, and the last one that I'll mention is a Spooky, S-P-U-K-I-E which is what? unique only to the city of Boston, which is where I now live. And it derives from the Italian word spucciadella, meaning long roll. I have... So every other one I've heard of, that one I have not. In fact, I, I thought when you were talking about the wedge that you were going to talk about it uh, being a whack, uh, which would have been um, Buffalo Wild Wings used to be BW3. So it was Buffalo, Wild Wings, and Whack. 
and so that was because they used to sell Weck sandwiches. And I thought in my head that Weck may have been, you know, what you're saying a wedge is, but uh, I, I'd have to Google Weck to see what the, the bun is like. Definitely possible, but I, I that's was not part of my research. And just, so there's some, like the po' boy sandwich from Louisiana is also put right. on a long roll, but oftentimes I feel like that roll is is it's of different. a different consistency. It absolutely is. Um, so yeah. that that's worth mentioning. And then apparently, I've never had one, so I can't attest to how close it is to our North American submarine sandwiches, but in Cape Town, South Africa, they call them Gatsby's, as in the Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby. Yes, Wow. I guess because it's an American thing and I don't know. I don't know why you'd call it that, but that's what they call. But that's that's what they call it. So those are all of the different versions of submarine sandwiches. And the earliest documented submarine sandwich uh, was in the 1940s. They wrote about it in a newspaper that was published in Delaware. Uh but that doesn't mean that Delaware is the origin of the sub sandwich. That just means that's the first place they wrote about it. So the history of that long roll is very unclear, but now obviously it is one of the biggest food items in the entire fast food industry. Yeah, it's crazy. In fact, one of my favorite things to do here is to go, if I'm working from home, there's a sub sandwich shop called Al's. Uh, that is local to Boston, but they're only open from 10 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. from Monday to Friday because they do okay. all of their business with the people downtown. The business folks. Yeah, exactly. And so it's only about 0.4 miles from me, and the the sandwich is $11, and it's the size of the gargantuan at Jimmy John's. Oh, man. And, wow. Uh, and it comes with chips and a drink, and they have all these different types. So I had a chicken cacciatore sub. Ooh, that sounds good. Like 17, 16 inches. And, uh, <laughs> Did you finish it in one yeah. sitting? Well, no, that one I, I had half of it for lunch and half of it for dinner. But then um, the one I got this week when I went was it was like shredded steak and melted cheese and pizza sauce with hot peppers and vegetables and all this stuff. And it, that's hot, a hot sub as well. I ate True. that whole thing in one sitting, all 16 inches of it. But then I didn't wow. eat again that day. So anyway, so they don't on, call before, them spookies. They call them, they just call them sandwiches. So uh, before we move on to the, the next section of the sub sandwich story, uh, I'm curious, uh, what what would be your favorite thing to have on a sub sandwich? So it's a difficult question because sub sandwiches do not discriminate between being hot and cold, but a lot right. of sub sandwich fast food restaurants default to cold sandwiches or and serve a lot of like deli meats, you know, versus having hot steak, hot chicken, you know, meatballs. But run of the mill, my favorite sub sandwich, I guess unless I'm craving something else would be whatever the, the restaurant's version of an Italian sub is. So that generally has capicola ham on it, Genoa salami, generally some provolone, uh, maybe a little pepperoni, maybe some pepperoni, 
and then I'll get hot peppers on it and I'll get oil and vinegar on it and I'll get Italian seasoning on it and I'll get lettuce on it. And if I can hit most of those boxes, I'm a happy camper. So at nice. at Subway, that's the Italian BMT and at Jimmy John's, it's the Vito. How about you, Pop? What's your favorite sub sandwich? Uh, my favorite sub sandwich would be very, 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 very thin sliced turkey uh, with a little bacon, some ranch. Uh, I like having pickles on it. I also like to have lettuce, tomatoes. Cheese is a winner as well. Mm-hmm. And then I like to have some type of uh, uh, a sauce. So depending on where I go, so if it's Jimmy John's, they've got their kicking ranch, which I really like. I've, I love that a lot. A little spicier version of ranch. If I go to Firehouse Subs, which is one of my favorite sub places. That is my favorite sub place. Yeah, it's it's very good. They've got the Firehouse sauce that uh, you can throw on there, and it's got just a little bit of a kick to it as well. And that is absolutely uh, what I what I like to have. So uh, yeah, I, I it's been a long time, frankly, since I was at a, a you know a Subway uh, location. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I, it would be hard for me to say exactly what the sandwich would be off of that, but Jimmy John's or Firehouse are really the ones that I would go to. Well, so let's dive into Subway a little bit. And yeah, then let's talk about it. we can psychoanalyze them. maybe why you haven't been to one in a while. Let's, so Let's go. As I said, it was founded by 17-year-old Fred DeLuca, and, but it shocking. was called Pete's. It was called Pete's Super Submarines, but the sign said Pete's Submarines. And... Uh, and the reason it was called Pete's is because as a 17-year-old, the boy had no money. And the, the idea... He said a great idea. Yeah. The idea to open a sub shop, I guess, was kind of novel at the time. And it was more of a situation where sub sandwiches were something that you would buy at regular sit-down restaurants. And he saw it as a high potential on college campuses for a high-speed food transaction, right? Kids are on the go. And, and, um, by now we had, you know, already had Burger King and McDonald's on the scene. Um, and I think that his concept, and I I don't know this, but I can only guess at it was that he could make a killing by doing something that was a little bit more, um, methodical. If you're focusing in on just one item, a sub sandwich, you can do all these varieties, uh, that are just different combinations of things instead of like having dedicated fryers for this and that and the other thing and having develop a whole speedy system. We're just talking about having a, a delicatessen glass window where people pick and point at things and you just put them onto a sandwich. Um, it's a great concept. So he wanted to do that in order to pay for his undergrad, but he didn't have the seed money. He wanted to become a doctor. Oh, okay. And so he went to a mentor of his, Peter Buck, who uh, was a doctor, and asked for a loan to start a business so that he could make money to support himself through college, which was a concept that dr- like drives me crazy to even think about, like the idea that you'd be running a full-time business in order to get enough money to pay for school. Um, That is crazy. When he could have probably just gotten a job at a business and paid for school because now he's like got to pay the overhead costs. But hey, 
Obviously, this worked out for him, so I can't critique it. I just feel like <laughs> yes. you'd have to spend a lot of time focusing on the restaurant and less time focusing on the school. Or it would be a flop because you're not dedicating enough attention to it, and then you can't pay for school anyway. Either way, he told Pete, Peter Buck, his mentor, and he thought it was a great idea. And so they set up an LLC called Doctors Associates Inc. Oh, that's where that came from. I, I knew that they were the that was the LLC, but now I understand why. Yes. So Pete was a doctor, and Fred wanted to be a doctor. So instead of naming the LLC Pete's Super Submarines, they named it Doctors Associates Inc. And they still own Subway. And he gave him one thousand dollars in nineteen sixty five to open up the place. Thousand bucks, that's it? It's a lot of money back then, if you look at inflation. I think in nineteen sixty five tuition to go to school was probably about two thousand dollars a year. That might be a little little high. Might sure. even be lower than that. So that's about half a year's tuition. And he wanted to turn that into four four years tuition. Well, it took off. On the first day of operation of Pete's Super Submarines, they sold 321 sandwiches on a college campus wow. Wow. Uh, in Bridge, Bridgeport, Connecticut. And, uh, and eventually, they had to change the name because people would call it Pete's Submarines, but people didn't really know that a sub sandwich place could exist on its own. And when you would say Pete's Submarines... They thought they were saying pizza marines. So they thought oh. it was a pizza shop. And so then he changed it to Pete's Subway. Interesting. And then after a while, they dropped the name, I think 1974, and it just was known as Subway. And Pete's name was removed from it. And that was, is was the Pete history upset? of Subway. I have no idea I wasn't there. That's crazy. That so I didn't know any of that information right. at all, and it's that's crazy. I mean, just seventeen-year-old uh, who wants to become a doctor goes to a friend of his who happens to be a doctor. Well, and- he went to him. I, I think he he was the reason that he knew him is because he was a mentor who was a doctor. Right, right. It's that he wanted that to model is, himself after. Right, and the fact that that Doctor Buck was. Uh, interested in and willing to invest in a he thought it was a great a restaurant. Yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. Right, and uh, obviously, I think that that was a a good decision because sub sub sandwiches are one of the like largest categories of fast food that exist. And in fact, Subway is the most common fast food restaurant in the entire world. Subway itself has the most locations of any fast food chain in the entire world, greater than my favorite fast food chain, McDonald's. Which, again, that is surprising when you think about it. Yeah. Uh, McDonald's just seems so ubiquitous that you would never imagine Subway would have more locations. Right. So McDonald's had the head start. They were founded before Subway was started, and they exploded much faster. But I think that what Subway had going for it was the fact that it was so, it's so low cost to open up. You don't need much equipment. You need a couple coolers and then you need the supply chain to make sure you're getting meat, cheese, and bread, right? And, and produce. Right. And it, versus at McDonald's, you need these fryers, you need to have 
uh, a dedicated storefront because that's how the McDonald's Corporation works. Or they have to be able to buy the land or whatever. If you watch the movie, you'll know. <laughs> I've seen it. I've right. Seen it. So there's just a, there's a different um, a different corporate structure and also different needs. And I think that it was a lot lower cost of entry to open a subway. And so low, in fact, that in 2011, there were more subway locations uh, in than McDonald's for the first time. And it peaked at... 42,000 restaurants, but now there's only 37,540, and McDonald's has 37,000. So as you can tell, Subway is shrinking. And maybe that goes hand in hand with what you mentioned earlier, which is that you have not been to a Subway in probably, what, four years? How long has oh, it probably, been? Yeah, it's probably, um, probably 10. 10 years since you've been to Subway. So why did you stop eating at Subway? Part of it was uh, there were so many options and there were so many different options and options that I liked better. Uh, you know, potbelly sandwiches. Again, that's another Subway, uh, you know, franchise. I liked what their offerings were better. Jimmy John's, you know, they're freaky fast. You could order them and they would deliver to you super fast. Or when you were in there, you'd be in and out in, in you know, just a short period of time. Then you had Firehouse, which had totally different approach in terms of what could or could not go on a sandwich, what combinations that they had. You know, the story goes on and on. It, it felt like Subway, while the the, the ingredients and stuff were, were fine, they, they weren't spectacular, and it it was just the same thing over and over again. Um, so I, the, just having the variety. Now, here's something I will tell you, though, and I don't know if you know this or not. I can't remember if Mom maybe shared this with you or or if I anyway, did at one point in time. Yeah. Uh, Back when we first were married, uh, mom and I used to go to Subway every single Sunday. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there was a Subway that was uh, probably a couple miles from our house where we lived in Brooklyn Center. And we would go there because they had the two footlongs for five bucks. You know, not the $5 footlongs, but they had the two for five bucks back then. And, you know, we were just newlyweds and didn't have a lot of money and couldn't go out to eat very often. And... That was our going out to eat. We would walk to Subway, get two foot long sandwiches, walk back and sit outside and eat them on in the in the back of our house. And so we had Subway I, probably for two years. We every single Sunday for two years, we had Subway. That's that's the American dream, man. That's beautiful. I love that. I did know that uh, because it's a fact that you guys shared generally when we would go and look at the old house. That oh, was sure. one of your stories when we because we drive past the house and then we drive past where the subway was and then when you saw the subway you'd go we would eat there every Sunday. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that's great. I'm I've never been that passionate about Subway itself as a restaurant, and I think for the exact same reason you mentioned, and I think that this is why it suffered. There's a very low barrier to entry to sub sandwich restaurants, as I mentioned. You, what you need to make a sub sandwich versus what you need to make a French fry, differs wildly, or a hamburger, or whatever. You don't even need a grill to have a sub sandwich shop, and Jimmy John's doesn't. So, it was easy for places to go. Okay, this is the formula. We put them in high density areas where people need to be in and out. And we can put our own little branding and little spin on it and see how it goes. And so 
Subway had the advantage of being first, but all these other restaurants had the advantage of getting to offer something that Subway didn't. Because how could Subway know what to offer? They already have their own offerings. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. But you can look and go, oh, well, I want this. I want that. Well, we can sell that to people. And I think that for me personally, Jimmy John's, if I'm going to go and get a cold sub, Jimmy John's versus Subway, it's like hands down, I would never choose to go to Subway. Yep, I agree. They have better combinations. I think the bread is better yes, at Jimmy yes, John's. Yes. And uh, I think that most of the time it's faster and run a little bit better and a little bit cleaner. And I don't know. And there's absolutely no innovation whatsoever going on at Subway because uh, they're <laughs> already comfortably in the lead. So why innovate? And Steph Curry might disagree with me in all of his Subway refresh commercials that he does. But I've been to a Subway since the refresh, and it felt exactly like the Subway that I went to 12 years ago. Now, I don't need a refresh. I need good food. And I think that Subway just doesn't stand on the same leg as a as a place like Jimmy John's and Firehouse. Firehouse is far and away the best like sub-sandwich chain that I've ever had. This yeah. Al's place is not a chain, but... I think I like it a little bit better than um, than Firehouse, but as chains go, Firehouse is the best. Yeah, I, I can't dispute that. I li- I really like Firehouse a lot. Yeah, and uh, I mean, just to think, like off the top of my head, we got Subway, we've got Jimmy John's, we've got Jersey Mike's, Firehouse. There's all kinds of of sub sandwich shops. So, in aggregate much bigger than any other kind of fast food option but but still subway remains king of it all which is surprising actually like you said with all the options i'm actually frankly a little surprised that they haven't shrunk as uh more well they really do have um a stronghold out here in the northeast i know for sure because there's not there's one jimmy john's in all of boston Oh, wow. Yeah, but there's subways all over the place. You know, not as many subways as there are Dunkin' Donuts, but it's a big thing <laughs> because they started out here uh, in Connecticut. So I think that this is a pretty big stronghold for them that people haven't really moved into. Uh, and all along the eastern seaboard, I think, is mostly subway too. And When I was in Raleigh, there was not a close Jimmy John's, but there was a close subway. In every small town in America, yes. if they yep. don't have a McDonald's. McDonald's, they still have a Subway. And if they do have a McDonald's, then they definitely have a Subway. Because, again, it's so much easier to open a Subway than it is to open a McDonald's. It's all about the ease, baby. I don't think that uh, Fred DeLuca was thinking about scaling when he started his first Subway, but he stumbled into one hell of an idea. He sure did. And it actually mirrors, like I know Cane's was started in a similar fashion. The the Todd Graves, the guy who started Cane's Chicken Fingers, liked Chicken Fingers. And so he was like, I'm going to, to put myself through college, open a chicken finger restaurant that all we serve is chicken fingers. Because if we can do one thing really well, people will come, but we'll be able to outpace our competition and simplify our supply chain as well. And anybody can fry a chicken finger, right? So it's it's not a bad concept, this single item store kind of thing. Uh, and 
in fact, there have been different periods in McDonald's history where they try to simplify their menu and then they re-diversify it when new leadership comes in and then they re-simplify it. It all kind of like ping-pongs back and forth because you want to give people the choice, but you need to keep the menu simple enough that you can do everything that you do well. Uh, and some places get mired down in advertising campaigns to offer you choice, Wendy's, Burger King. These places don't tend to gain a lot of market share because uh, their menu is all, all over the place. At least that's my right. supposition. No, I totally agree with you. Sometimes when you get too much choice or you don't know what you're getting when you go someplace, you don't want to go there. That, that and like it, even if I do go, my, my experience might be worse because a person has to make like 17 million different things that are on the menu. So first I got to sit in the drive-thru line while everybody who's in front of me has to choose what they're going to eat. At Cane's, <laughs> you already know what you're ordering when you pull up to the window, you're ordering chicken fingers. So it takes you about seven seconds to ask for it. But it takes my buddy Tony 15 minutes to figure out what he's going to get, even at McDonald's. Now imagine taking him to a Wendy's if he were open to that kind of thing. I'm sure he's not. But you got to wait for the people to order, and then they have to make all these different items. Like the system at McDonald's is even a little scary. They have all these like little windows that they pull little like plastic things out of, and one side they're cooking different things and different fryers and putting it into this like system to all speed it up a little bit. The other places aren't that efficient and they have more items on the menu. Going to Burger King makes me want to hit my head with a tack hammer. <laughs> Not because the food is bad, it's fine, but it, it just the the service is so slow most times that it's it's worth paying an extra dollar to eat at McDonald's. Yeah, I can't think of the last time I said Burger King. It's been a very, very long time. And in a similar fashion jimmy john's is to subway like if there's a jimmy john's i know that it's all gonna come together i'm gonna like the taste of it and it'll be done faster than the other one now right does it make a difference when i'm going to a restaurant most of the time is it i need to fit it in a strict window no but there's just something annoying about going to a fast food restaurant and standing there for 10 minutes waiting for food that you could could have in five so yeah, I agree with you. I mean, hence the name fast food, right? I mean, that's the whole idea is that people tend to go into a place like that because they expect efficiency and to be able to get in and out uh, in a timely fashion. Yeah. So those are my thoughts on Subway. It peaked at nice. over 42,000 restaurants and because of people like you and me making other decisions and the increasing number of competitors it has dropped down to 37,000. That's where it stands today. And my prediction, it will continue to drop. They've got this international stranglehold, I feel like. Probably not as many sub-competitors in foreign countries since it did or originate in the Northeast. But over time, either they'll die out because they suck or they'll get competitors that replace them. I don't yep. see a good way to innovate Subway without completely changing the vibe of the restaurant. But it's like Kleenex, you know? I mean, people don't call their sub sandwiches sub sandwiches because of Subway, but Subway is a huge name. You know exactly what it is. You know exactly what you're getting when you walk in. And it's it would be hard to change that perception in the public's eye, I feel like. Yeah, I agree with you. But it'll stay, it'll stay big in small town America, similar to the way that A&W is big in small town America. And yes, if you're is. going, what's A and W? My point exactly. 
That's a different topic for a different day. Yes, I'm going to write that down. We're going to talk about AW as well. All right, that's all I all I got on Subway. Those are my thoughts. That's my history. I, like I feel like we did a good job. And okay, no, job. I like it. All right, great. Okay, Pop, get us started with This Week in Media. All right, so This Week in Media. So I went to a, a Bob Dylan concert for the first time in my life. Uh, just kind of a history of it for, for me. I'm not a huge Bob Dylan fan. In fact, uh, I can find some of his music very grating. Uh, his voice, um, the har- way too much harmonica for me. But a friend of mine was coming down here to visit in Arizona, and he's going to play in a, in a uh, music festival. And I happened to look at the, the dates in which he was coming down, and I noticed that Bob Dylan had uh, announced two concerts. One was down here in Phoenix and then uh, for one night, and then the next night was going to be down in Tucson. And so I hit up my buddy and said, hey, uh, you interested in going to this Bob Dylan concert? I knew his answer was going to be yes because he's a huge Bob Dylan fan, and his son is named after Bob Dylan. So I kind of had a, a thought process that maybe he wanted to go. So we went to the concert, and I got to tell you, I was very surprised that I enjoyed it. In fact, it's one of those things where if he would have been playing two concerts in Phoenix instead of one in Phoenix and one in Tucson, I may very well have gone to the concert wow, again the, double, the, the next night. The double concert. That's And it, it, it was because it, it was so out of left field for what I expected, you know, you know, let me ask you this. When you think of Bob Dylan and potentially going to a Bob Dylan concert, what would you expect in terms of stage presence and uh, in, in what would be on the stage? Electric guitar, because I knew that he swore off using his acoustic a long time ago. Fair enough. Yep. Um, and so then I would imagine him to play all of his new stuff that I haven't heard because I know all of his 60s folk stuff. And right. then I would imagine it to be similar to like... Uh, um, I'm trying to think of a, a solo artist. I don't know. I I'm not sure. I I mean, I guess I, just described what I thought I would see. Yeah, and so for me, uh, I I knew he probably wasn't going to play acoustic because, like you said, he kind of swore that off. But I fully expected him to be sitting down playing guitar, and to be able to uh, pull the harmonica out a few times during the you can't during do the harmonica concert. and electric guitar. You well, okay? Well, you can, but we we won't get into that right now. Um, with, with that being said, uh, that's kind of what I expected. What happened was the, uh, stage was lit up and, and it actually looked like a lounge it had kind of this red lighting and drapery and that's the way the stage was. And so I'm like, okay, this is going to be an interesting uh, concert. And so then the lights came up just a little bit and suddenly he had a full band and he was behind the piano. I didn't even know Bob Dylan played piano. I assumed that he probably plunked around with it. You know, when you're a songwriter, you're going to use a guitar or a piano for the most part. And so I assumed that he plunked around with it. He actually was a, like, not just plunking around with it. He actually played piano. Super impressed. The disrespect. The, the disrespect well, that you wouldn't think. He's one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Never mind him as a performer. The number of hits that he wrote for other musicians that you don't know were written by Bob Dylan, he wrote a ton of Johnny Cash's music. A ton. I'm, f- I'm familiar with, with the fact that he wrote a lot of music for a lot of folks. I you just have didn't... to know how to play piano to be a composer. Yep, I, 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 just, I just said that. But just I plunking. Said I, I mean, the disrespect. He's got to be. He's got to be better. 
So I uh, didn't expect him to come out and play piano the whole time, I, which was great that he did. Um, and the fact that he had a great band with him as well. He had, some, he had two guitarists, uh, one who played lead, and another one who was a, uh, uh, you know, a, a rhythm guitarist, great drummer, and then a percussion section. It was, it was wonderful. I lo- absolutely loved the concert. And he did play music from one of his more recent albums, uh, the one from uh, 2018, Rough and Rowdy Ways. I played the whole album, then he threw in a couple uh, uh, other songs that were, um, You Gotta Serve Somebody was the one that I can think about off the top of my head. Great song, well-known Bob Dylan song. Yeah. Uh, and he, 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 he killed it. Absolutely loved the concert. It was a, a blast to go to. It was super fun to go with, with my friend who is a huge Bob Dylan fan. And by the way, my friend is Ted, and he's the guy who does the intro for our, our podcast here. That's right. So Yeah, thanks, Absolutely. Ted. Absolutely loved uh, loved being able to go with him, and it was it was a great concert. And like I said, if you get a chance, Bob Bob is playing out this exact set, uh, I think for another eight months uh, around the country, and he's I think he's going over to Europe as well. Uh, so if you get a chance to see him, highly highly recommend seeing him in this specific concert. So that's my this week in media, Jordan. Uh, what was yours? Well, uh, well, I, I'm not ready to just skip past the Bob Dylan stuff because I want to talk about Bob Dylan now. I also don't like his voice, but I tend to like a lot of his music as performed by other artists. And I tend to like his compositions that other people sing as well. And I think that he is kind of legendary as a performer for some reason. I'm not sure. I guess maybe just because he... Is it because he kind of originated like this like anti-war kind of sentiment that is now very popular? Like he was a little bit more counterculture in the, in the stuff that he sang about in the 60s, like folk movement. He represented maybe a more like rebel voice. I'm not sure what else it could have been because to listen to his voice and the harmonica and the way that he plays his music out of time, at least the way he did in the 60s, makes me want to hit my head with a tack hammer but <laughs> but i still respect him a lot what do you think that is dad why is um, he I, why is he such a legend i i think there's a couple factors of it some of it is I mean, he's an incredible songwriter so so his voice aside which again that was one of my concerns going to the concert is that i'm not a big fan of his voice however it's it's interesting throughout his career how he changed his voice in and on different albums so his early albums were were in one way, and then he kind of got into that, I don't even know how to say it, a sing-songy voice. I don't even know how to, whiny style voice, and that's the Bob Dylan voice I can't stand. Yeah. Um, and then there's some song, some uh, albums he did in the late 60s, which are just him straight out singing, and he's got a, a you know a, a good voice, solid voice. And he, in this concert specifically, he brought out more of that voice. Um, but to answer your question, it was his lyrics were were really hit home with a lot of folks, mm-hmm. and he actually he's given a lot of um, uh, interviews, and he's kind of a slippery interview. What I mean by this, he'll do interviews and he'll do them every now and then, but he doesn't give you the answer that you're expecting. And he's in when he's giving you the answer, sometimes he actually means something totally different, which is exactly the way his song lyrics are written. And I think that is part of what made him popular. And because he, he would, if you said, "Hey, Bob, are you were you an anti-war activist?" He's like. No, that's not where I wanted to be. But he became that anthem because it really hit home with people, it really got to people's hearts and into their minds. And so I think that's part of what it was. And regardless of whether he was a, a great 
singer, the, the people looked past that. Yeah. But to your point, one, one of his, you know, there's a million songs that you and I can name, but one of, one of the songs that I can think of right now that he would tell you that is, he wrote it and he performed it, but he would tell you it's no longer his song, is a song that Jimi Hendrix did that was a cover of his, All Along the Watchtower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of my favorite Jimi Hendrix songs. And I knew that Bob Dylan wrote that, but that's, a, that's an example of what you were talking about, where he wrote a lot of songs specifically for other people or people covered them, and they still hit home. That song by Jimi Hendrix, not only the guitar is great, but the story behind it is, is crazy. And at some point in time, I think we should dive actually into that song and what the there's like three or four different theories behind what that song means, and I would love to talk about that at some point in time. Well, you can finally host one of the feature stories. I've been waiting for you to to do half the work here. Goodness gracious! <laughs> so maybe that'll be your first one. There you go. Uh, this week in media, I rewatched the movie Tommy Boy. Classic, uh, absolutely classic. If you haven't seen it audience out there mom i know you have but it's okay watch it again it's a classic chris farley david spade combo shout out to chris farley fellow marquette graduate and uh the one thing that i really liked this particular watch through was the like the soundtrack <laughs> like they yeah, they used yes. a lot of different popular songs from the time like, I guess it, it would have been older, like 80s and 70s stuff that they're listening to in the car as they're driving around, even though they're doing right. it in the 90s. Um, but like, there's this, uh, what is it, Eris 2 or whatever, where they're like singing <laughs> yes. in their car. That That's yes. a song you never hear anymore, or I've never nope. heard on the radio, like not on anything, but it's kind of a bop. It's kind of a jam. And they have like Superstar by the Carpenters as well, yep. which is, was, these were all like probably really, I mean, I know they were big songs, but it's just funny. And End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. Yes. Yeah. So all of those scenes where they're driving in Richard's car on the sales trip and they're listening to the different music is, is a, they're very touching, tender moments. And I think that everybody should watch that, that movie. It is a classic movie. So, and I agree with you. Everybody should watch it. Uh, you, you know, one of my favorite memories of that movie itself, honestly, was the first few times that you watched that movie because I think you were, I don't know, probably. It's, I'm sad to say, probably four or five years yeah, old the first five, time you saw yeah. that movie. Yeah. And I loved you getting a kick out of watching that movie. You know, I really liked that movie a lot, and then showing it to you and you, just getting a lot of fun and laughs and just repeating parts of that movie. I mean, we still do that. I mean, when we did the, the well, you referenced this in our Krispy Kreme episode, you talked about getting, you know, the Bear Claws lodged right about here. Yeah. And it's 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 a classic movie for so many different reasons. Uh, the writing, the acting, uh, just kind of the storyline was phenomenal. You had you had some classic callbacks. You know, Brian Dennehy, is, it was fun, but you had, um, you know, uh, Bo Derek from 10, and she comes out of the swimming pool in that same exact fashion that she comes out of the ocean in 10 with, it was great. It was, it was a, a fun movie to watch. And it is one that I watch on a pretty regular rotation. Yeah. Uh, however, <laughs> speaking of reviews, uh, there's a guy who works for me who's never seen that movie ever. And he's uh, early thirties. And I told him, I said, I'm going to have to write that on your review. You know, that, that, that for you to get a certain review, 
uh, you have to watch Tommy Boy. Otherwise, I'm going to dock you on your review. I said, that's just an embarrassment that you haven't seen that movie. Uh, you know, because uh, it's such a classic. It I, is. I absolutely love it. So I think it's great as a five-year-old, except for the scene where the <laughs> girl is in the pool and it covered my eyes. And then they have like a five-minute conversation about masturbation, which totally went over my head as a kid. Thankfully. thankfully. Uh, <laughs> aside from that, it's like, I guess maybe it wouldn't play well in theaters today because Probably not just not. the movie, but all of Chris Farley's humor was basically centered around his size and weight. And yes, I think that he was very comfortable with using that as a form of humor, although maybe not because obviously he had a very tragic death. But maybe I don't know how to describe it. He was a willing participant in in all of that kind of stuff. So I don't necessarily feel bad about laughing at it because I think that he was trying to be funny and would want me to laugh at the jokes that he was making. But I think that the message that it would send today in a world where there's a lot more conversations about being overweight and the, the mental health struggles that come along with that and i'm i'm no stranger to those but the making constant jokes about being overweight as they do in tommy boy maybe wouldn't play as well but it's still like a really heartwarming story about a kid or a man who's trying to get over the loss of his father and figure out how to yes. be a man himself after kind yep. of babying his way through life absolutely and i think that that setting with all of the simple humor that they do have makes it fun for a 30 year old makes it fun for a five-year-old everybody should watch it it's really good so absolutely agree and at the beginning they don't film it at marquette but they're pretending that he's at marquette university which i you know maybe that is why i ended up choosing marquette unbeknownst to me because <laughs> because i never made that association when i was at marquette and in fact i don't think i remember that until I watched it for the first time while at Marquette and he was wearing the, his Marquette rugby jacket, which was his jacket from when he played for the Marquette rugby team. Yes, I was sitting yes. there and I was like, oh, wait, like this is supposed to be Marquette. Marquette doesn't look this cool, but that's what this is supposed <laughs> to be. Um, and who knows? Maybe that movie shaped my life in a significant way. Maybe I it wouldn't have. have been so preferential to Marquette if I didn't have that looming somewhere in the back of my brain. It was subconsciously set there and it, it grew and sprouted and there you go. You yeah. And uh, Chris Farley's brothers also went to Marquette and I've actually met both of them. Well, two of them. He's got three brothers, but great guys, both in the acting business as well. I guess that's kind of the, and comedy. That's kind of the family, family tradition. And, uh, and they love their brother and they love that movie too. They talked about it quite a bit when they were at Marquette and I met them. So great movie. Everybody should watch it. All right, pop, what's something you learned this week? All right. So what I learned this week is just out of the blue, I found some information about semi trailers. So We've done a few road trips, and many I'd times we've, so. <laughs> we found ourselves sitting behind a semi-trailer on some of those road trips. Would you agree? Yeah, and I wanted to hit my head with a tack hammer. 
<laughs> Especially if it was at night and it was a two-lane road. Uh, so as we're driving behind those things, I don't know if you've noticed, but I have noticed, uh, you know, they have the big doors that swing open and, and have the locks on them, but they also have this tiny little door on the right-hand side, uh, do- large door. And I don't know. I you know ever what you're talking that? about. I have noticed yeah. it, but I've never thought about why it was there. So now I'm excited to learn why it was there because I've never, I've seen that door so many times, but it's so common yeah. that you just, you don't even question why it's there. But why could it exactly. possibly be? It's just a little square with a little, yeah. I mean, it's not really a big door. What is that for? What's the door well, for? I- I'm going to spin it on you and, and uh, kind make of take me a guess. Test. I'm going to make you guess. I'll, I'll g- give me your best guess, and I'll, and I'll tell you what it is. Uh, it, if you get it right right away, then I'll, I'll share that as well. Okay. My guess is that it's some kind of human trafficking prevention measure <laughs> where <laughs> you can wow. open the door from the inside so that you don't end up trapped in a semi-trailer thing. And then you wow. can jump out. N- not where I thought you were going to go with that. And no, I mean, what else? Not. What else could you need that except to let somebody out? I mean, what do you? I'm so confused why it would be there. Well, I'm going to give you what most people have guessed it to be, and uh, explain why that is not it. And then I will absolutely tell you what it what it really is and why it's there. Okay. So when people see it, the number one guess that people have is that it's a quick way to do inspection on cargo. So uh, if, if a semi mm-hmm. has to get pulled over to uh, like one of the weighing uh, stations yeah, that are on the freeways, yeah. yep, the people open up the door, check and see what's going on in there, and then close it up. And so that's what a lot of people assume it, it's for. That's a lot of times that first guess. But isn't not, the handle on the inside of the truck? It's on it, the outside? It's not. I thought it, it was on it, the yep, inside. You have the ability to open it up from from the outside. Okay. Anyway, but so what's it for? There's, so let me explain why that's not the case. If you think about a, a semi trailer that's fully stocked with stuff, if you open that door, what would you see? A box. Exactly. So yeah. it's I wouldn't a, have guessed a, that. Right. That's but why that's I what most people guess. That. That's because they're kind of idiots. Well, and I'm so not. So what? It, well, there you go. So uh, what it is for actually is a vent. It's a vent door. So what happens is that there's that door on the back, and then there's also a flap that's on the top that you don't see. And so when a uh, semi-truck is hauling something, especially if it's a refrigerated truck, once they're done, they will open up both the top vent and the back vent, and they will drive the vehicle that way for two reasons. One, to potentially thaw out anything that's that's, uh, you know, still frozen, you know, in the frozen line so that they can start fresh or to air it out in case there was some particularly smelly scented. Mm. Exactly. The other thing that from a venting perspective would be if it's particularly hot and they need to cool that uh, that trailer off a bit, they'll open up the top and that one and let the, the air flow through that a lot quicker so that the so that it's not nearly as warm in there. But so, if uh, you're a person who's trapped in a semi-trailer, that's probably your best bet to get out, is to break through that little thing. If you were a person that was trapped in a semi-trailer... Because generally knew, they put locks on the outside. I always think about that. I'm like, hey, they could put anybody in one of those trucks. And oftentimes in the scary movies, they do that. Absolutely. Absolutely they do. So, but yeah, that's what it's for. That's a it's fun a fact. Event. I did not know that. Yeah, that's great. That makes sense. Awesome. 
I'm going to yeah, say so that me- it's a human trafficking door. I'd literally <laughs> never thought about it before now. That's great. My well, fun figured, fact. Oh, sorry. I, I say I figured you would appreciate it because it's something that's so unique that, like you said, people don't really think about it. Now you uh, you have something to, again, Tuesday trivia night. Yes. My fun fact is is shorter. It's just more of like a novelty, interesting sure. thing. But uh, there's all these like tour buses that go around the big cities everywhere. And yeah. they're sometimes double-decker buses. So there's one coming down the avenue. Yeah. And I was like... What a weird like concept. Why didn't they just make a single layer bus? Like oftentimes there's things above roadways. What's the point? So right. I couldn't figure out what the real like good answer for why you would want a double decker bus was, but in my in my quick Google search of d- the history of double decker buses, I found out that the first like the concept for the double decker bus was actually a double decker horse carriage. Whoa! Isn't that interesting? It's crazy. I can, that. So in 1847, seemed... they would have like these big horse carriages that would pull large loads of people called omnibuses, which is where okay. the term bus comes from. Sure. And it was not like a novelty. It was more of a functional thing. So they built a double-decker carriage pulled by horse. And if you okay. had a lot of money, you'd pay full price to be cover in the covered part with a seat and if you were just trying to get from one place to another and didn't have a lot of money you would be up on a deck kind of like in london how they have the double decker buses without the top on them right yeah there was no top and there was no seat and it was like basically riding in the back of a truck bed where you're just so so you were just sitting or trying to stand or standing yeah on a horse carriage and the, oh, the ticket was half the price on the original one to be up on the top deck and so if you were a pole folk you'd be up there and if you were a rich folk you'd be down below but now i don't think rich people ride on double decker buses because they're all probably just not. tour buses but it seems like a dumb concept because a lot of a lot of like highway overpasses i would imagine are taller than like the entrance to them like if it's an if you're going through, I would imagine you'd take the top of the bus clean off. Yeah. It seems know. like it could be a little dangerous. D- double decker buses just like, don't make sense to me as a concept. I don't know. Like the idea that you, I guess you can just fit more people on a single bus, but the trade-off doesn't seem to make sense. I don't know. It's very yeah, weird. I can only think of them, like you said, as, as tour buses, you know, that we've, we've all been on those someplace. And so that's, that's the way I think of them. But in terms of a double-decker, like, regular bus, I, I think <laughs> Yeah, that isn't that weird? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. so bizarre. And, uh, like, I think because they started in the UK, everybody, like, associates them with London or whatever. And I do. Certainly I do. they have them there, but I don't think outside of the tour buses to tour around London that you would find them more frequently than you would here. But I could be right. wrong about that. That's a cool fact. I like that, George. Yeah, I started like out as a carriage. Kind of interesting. It is cool. All right, Pop. This week, I'll start. This week in chess. Yeah. So we're on the third leg of the FIDE Grand Prix, which means I will no longer be talking about the FIDE Grand Prix in these episodes. (laughs) And this, so Hikaru competed in the first leg and he competed in the third leg, Hikaru Nakamura, 
seventeenth uh, best chess player in the world, uh, classically is making a return to classical chess after more than two years of not playing, and we're rooting for him because he's a superstar American, and he was actually seated against probably the most formidable opponent in this third leg of the tournament, Levon Aronian, who was Armenian but recently uh, reclassified under the U.S. Chess Federation. And okay. he is, I think, fourth best in the world. And so for the third leg of the Grand Prix, they just ended up to be in the same pool, which it's random seating, so you never know who you're going to get paired up against. And he lost his first game against Levon, and there's four oh. people in a pool, and it's a double round-robin kind of action. And so there was some speculation that Hikaru would not get the points that he needed to qualify for the candidates tournament, which qualifies him for the uh, championship match if he wins it. But since then, he's gone on a tear and he's now back at the top of his pool with three points head to head with Levon Aronian, where he won his second game versus Levon nice. and also won a game today against uh, somebody else. So we're rooting for Hikaru. I wish these uh, chess events were organized in a more standardized way that's not like really confusing to understand and explain because it would appeal to more people that way if I didn't have to spend so much time talking about the rules. But go, <laughs> go Hikaru. We're rooting for you to make it to the semifinals or finals of this event where you'll probably pick up enough points to qualify for the candidates tournament. And then from there, we'll see what happens. That's awesome. That's a great update, Jordan. That's, That's this cool. week in chess. Go, Hikaru. Your, your turn. All right. So my this weekend, last week, I, I talked about the Murph and started to train for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, a little while ago, I talked about uh, my knee having some issues for having to stop the marathon. This week, I am going to run for the first time since I, I stopped running. So I am looking forward to trying to get out there and run a little bit and see how my knee does. So uh, the next week, I'll give you an update to let you know how it went. But that's this is my first run that I've done in over a month. So I'm excited. All right. Good luck. I'm I'm rooting that everything is all healed up and you don't have a click, click, clackety knee like I do now. I'm hoping the same, my friend. All right. Well, I think we've gone long enough. Talked about Subway. Talked about Bob Dylan. And uh, yeah. I think that now we can wrap it up. Thank Sounds you so much for potting with me, Dad. I had fun. And special shout out to, to Ted Heineshevitz. Check out his stuff on Spotify. All right. Bye, Dad. We'll see you, Dad.